0: Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Thanks for continuing with us. I told you this was going to be just about the best Monday show ever, and uh, we continue with that. Dr. Scott Hahn is our guest. Sometimes we we say oh, this the next guest needs no introduction, but to our uh, Catholic audience, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn probably does uh, need no introduction. And I'll tell you what he spoke at our conference uh, just recently here in San Diego. And gave a wonderful uh, talk, which I think may, maybe had some previews of what we will talk about uh, today, but I got so excited that he was there. I think I introduced him about 10 minutes early and uh, got him up on stage. I realized, oh my gosh, I I, I, I jumped the gun. But uh, <laughs> that's how excited you get when you talk with Scott Hahn, because he has contributed so much uh, to the Catholic conversation, to the Catholic life uh, in, in, uh, in, in recent times, especially uh, as I said at the conference, and as I truly believe, in renewing, uh, even uh, l- long before the idea of Eucharistic renewal came, uh, he was renewing us uh, in our appreciation for Christ in the Eucharist, in our ability to grow close to Christ in the Eucharist. Just delighted to have him here. He's got a brand new book, which we will talk about. Dr. Scott Hahn, thank you very much for being here.
1: It is is—it is wonderful to be with you, Si, and thank you for giving me the 10 extra minutes.
0: <laughs> you, that's very gracious of you to say, uh, but uh, uh, th- uh, a wonderful talk um, and, a, and a wonderful new book, and I want to tell people about the new book, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Uh, you and your co-author, uh, Brandon McGinley, uh, wrote this book, and it it, it feels uh, like part of uh, what may be a... Um, an ongoing uh, uh, development of your thought, or this is where your thought is, is, is bringing you uh, now, is to reflect on the political, the cultural, the social uh, circumstances of our Christian faith, and uh, remind us that uh, we're it's not a state of despair that we're in, but it is a state of pilgrimage and journey that we're in.
1: Yeah, I mean, the controlling metaphors in this book are, as you just noted, Exile, pilgrimage, sojourning, terms that are familiar with anybody who reads the New Testament, but also the Old. And so I, I suppose I'm taking a cue from Richard John Newhouse, who in some ways was the voice of Catholic neoconservatism in the 80s and 90s. His last book, though, neutered that a bit, uh, American Babylon where he began to realize that these hopes and expectations for American culture and the Catholic faith, producing a fruitful union, uh, we ought to reassess this in more realistic terms. And uh, Brandon McGinley and I have been talking about this for years. Uh, he helped me with a book that came, back, came out back in 2019. It really represents the first of this trilogy. Uh, it was entitled The First Society, the sacrament of matrimony and the restoration of the social order, uh, and mm-hmm. and in that book I wrote about marriage and family, because I was finally an empty nester. I never wanted to, pro- you know, pronounce a curse upon myself by writing a book about marriage while we were still raising our kids, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we we had, we had, we had met with general success with all six kids and now the 21 grandkids. And so I could reflect upon marriage, I think, with greater detachment and experience and wisdom. But in the conversations that I had with Brandon, who is a fellow Pittsburgher like me, uh, he's a graduate of Princeton, a for, you know a former student of Robbie George. So we were kindred spirits. But like me, he had really begun to rethink matters with regard to Catholics and political involvement, right. aspirations, and that sort of thing. And so we came out with a book back in uh, – in 2020, entitled, uh, I'm looking at it right now, It is Right and Just, Why the Future of Civilization Depends on True Religion. And when we were finishing up that dialogue that lasted like oh, a couple of years, we realized that we had another book under our belt from all of these other conversations. And that that's what this is, Catholics in Exile. Because on the one hand, if people just read It is Right and Just by Scott and Brandon, they might assume that we were sort of like closet theocrats. Well, at one level, I suppose we are, because Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Like I mentioned in my talk in La Jolla at the Catholic Answers Conference, you know, we don't make him, though, the King of America. He already is the King of all nations and all citizens and rulers. But, you know, that one book was not a standalone. In a certain sense, it built upon the foundation of the first society, the sacrament of matrimony and the restoration of social order, showing how culture could be transformed from the ground up, as it were. But this book is the third in the trilogy. In some ways, I think the the finale, the climax, that is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. You know, And it's based upon this insight that a number of people have had over the, the centuries that Even if we were standing in Jerusalem, and there is King David anointing or enthroning his son Solomon, and we were in the the golden age of the kingdom of God back in the Old Testament, what we would recognize, hopefully, would be we're still in exile. We're still pilgrims. We're still sojourning because ultimately, even in the Old Testament, heaven was their home like it is ours heaven is not plan B. The new Jerusalem is not some alternate strategy. And so when we read scripture that way, we're reading it in, we're really reading it from the heart of the church. We're reading it right in step with the early church fathers. Uh, But when we read our own life experience, when we understand our historical circumstances in this way, it's sobering. And at the same time, it is, uh, it's elevating. So that's the background for the book. I mean, uh, Brandon, I think, is at least 30 years younger than me, and I've always enjoyed intense dialogue as the, the foundation for projects, and so we've had almost too much fun working together on Right and Just as well as Catholics in Exile, and right now he's got like five kids, all under 10, and oh he's the uh, editor of the Post-Gazette in Pittsburgh, the paper I used to deliver when I was a preteen uh, growing up in Pittsburgh.
0: Well, it really is biblical wisdom, and I and I don't want to uh, move too far away from letting people know that that this Catholics in Exile is about our current moment, but it is drawing on the very depths of of biblical wisdom, and then uh, and then uh, on the Catholic thought that developed out of all of that, particularly uh, Saint Augustine, uh, of course, who's uh, yeah. The uh, I mean, in many ways, is the greatest of all uh, Catholic thinkers. But the, it does seem to me, and I, I'm not going to get into that biblical wisdom, but I want to ask you about this. It, you talk about sobering. It does feel uh, as if the last two decades have been sobering for serious Catholics on just how accommodated we can be uh, to the to, to the modern world to the American scene as it is uh, And I'll be honest with you I think one of the things that kind of put a nail in the coffin of Thinking that we could accommodate for many people was the transgender movement. It, it surprised many people how quickly The abandonment of reality was just enforced everywhere suddenly it was just enforced everywhere a completely unreal view of the human person Uh, And I'm guessing that that's that's the experience you're talking about, that that, that there was a way in which, maybe in the 90s, you could uh, take a little bit more of that, accommodate and go along, and we'll have the Catholic moment uh, coming up here any time now, but that seems to have uh, evaporated in the last two decades.
1: Yeah, you mentioned the Catholic moment, of course, that was an earlier book by Father Newhouse. And it just seemed to represent the coalescence of all sorts of good things with John Paul II and with Cardinal Ratzinger, but also, you know, in the Reagan era and then Newhouse's own conversion. Uh, And suddenly it just seemed to vanish. And so in the last 5, 10, 15 years, I, I think you're right. I mean, any reasonable expectation that we are going to see an upward ascent, you know, for American or Western culture has been dashed. And even the prospect of reasonable discourse and civility, decorum, has also vanished. I mean, I think transgenderism is, as you said, exactly that tipping point where you look and you realize you're not serious. If by serious you mean you want to engage in reasonable discourse and base something on a common rationality, that's vanished. It really is a kind of Marxist overthrow Of the middle ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's scary. It's sobering. And at the same time, uh, if we understood our own spiritual genealogy a little bit better, I think as American Catholics, we would still be grateful for America. But I think we would be more mindful of the fact that whatever Christian roots our country had were really rooted in Protestantism. And so all of the things that represent the the tectonic plates that were shifting in Protestant Christianity for the last five centuries. I mean, all of this is coming home to roost in American culture today. There really is no moral authority, not to mention doctrinal authority. And so we're, we're, we're backing into a, a kind of anarchy, you know, what, what uh, slouching toward Gomorrah, you yep. know, as, uh, as we once heard.
0: Um, you know, Uh, Yeah, I think uh, is that uh, well, I guess that I guess that might be um, uh, T. S. Eliot and then Robert Bork. (laughs) slouching slouching towards Gomorrah. I can't believe it. That brings us already to our first break, but um, I want to get into the biblical uh, wisdom with Dr. Scott Hahn. I do highly recommend the book and the whole series. uh, If you're you're feeling adrift or uncertain or uh, that something really has shifted and you want to get on solid Catholic ground, uh, you could do a, a lot worse than this series and this book, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Scott Hahn is our guest. We'll continue with the conversation right after this.
1: Hello, this is Archbishop Alexander Sample of the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. Keep that dial right here on Catholic Answers Live.
0: Who was the first Catholic in your family? Were they evangelized by a friend, a coworker, a stranger? Did you ever think that you could be that person that God uses to save a soul, and that soul could save their family, their grandchildren, and generations to come? At St. Paul Street Evangelization, a Catholic nonprofit, we train, equip, and mobilize Catholic disciples to do the urgent work of evangelization. Catholic Answers is supported in part by St. Paul Street Evangelization. StreetEvangelization.com.
2: A special item on EWTNRC.com this month is the Our Lady of Grace Rosary and Pouch designed exclusively for EWTN. The set features a handcrafted rosary made of natural olive wood from the Holy Land in Jerusalem and a coordinating pouch. Both have a beautiful image of the Blessed Mother who intercedes for us all. Order today at EWTNRC.com, item number RPS04 or call 1-800-854-6316.
0: Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host, and uh, you know, in the conversation we just had with Dr. Chad uh, Pecknold the previous hour, and in, in many of the conversations Catholics have uh, these days, it becomes more and more clear that uh, we've uh, we're floundering a bit. We're floundering for an answer to how did we get here, certainly, but also a, a, a looking for an answer to what do we do uh, now that we're here and. Uh, what a wonderful thing to have Scott Hahn, who has devoted himself uh, I- I- to the study of the person of Jesus Christ as presented to us uh, in the Word of God, to say, hey, let's uh, let's let's take a look at uh, that. <laughs> let's take a look at to our deepest foundations. So the new book is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Scott Hahn is our guest. He does have a co-author uh, on this book, Brandon uh, McGinley, and uh, uh, Dr. Hahn Right from the beginning, we start in the Bible. We start with the person of Cain, and uh, and and we, and you work our, us through um, various persons and and events uh, in the Scripture to kind of enlighten our time. And the thing that you you're you're talking about with Cain is a, a world of violence and envy and, and uh, you, you conclude with, a, or near the conclusion, you have a se- this sentence, we see that earthbound horizons inevitably lead to envy, violence, and destruction. And maybe when we were accommodating ourselves more to the modern world, uh, we were not uh, quite clear on where our horizon was. Was it in this world or was it in the next? Uh, is that your sense that that's getting clarified now?
1: That's precisely right, yeah. And, you know, when you mentioned Cain and Abel, the purpose for focusing on them was not just that they are this originating story of the city of God versus the city of man. But because we use throughout the book Hebrews 11, which is a kind of hall of fame of the Old Testament saints, beginning, in fact, with Abel looking at Noah and focusing on Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to show consistently how they all, by faith, desired a better country. They weren't just looking for a slice of geography the size of New Jersey called Canaan or the promised land. And what the author of Hebrews is showing throughout that chapter is basically here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city whose builder and maker is God. And once we realize that the Old Testament saints had the same faith as we do, the same faith in Christ, he's coming, he's promised, he's off in the future, Now that he's come, we look back, they were looking forward, but it's the same faith. And the faith is not something we deduce just simply by looking at the articles of the Creed. It's infused supernaturally. And so you can see why in Hebrews 12, we have a cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, you know, and they are the souls of the faithful departed who have gone before us into heaven with Jesus' own ascension they're deeply invested in our lives praying for us as we discover and all of the rest and so it gives us great hope whereby we recognize okay if earth if we don't find our ultimate home on earth what does that mean that we have a contempt of this world well the monks cultivate that but we've got to see that we belong here in a way we have dual citizenship like Paul reminds the Philippians and Philippians 3:20. Our citizenship, our commonwealth, is in heaven. But he's not negating their citizenship in Philippi. And so, when we recognize this, we recognize that we can approach our work on earth with a certain detachment, but even more, a certain fearlessness, like the patriarchs and like Moses, and then later the judges. And so, we have a trajectory here. And I, speaking of trajectory, I should mention something too that. Uh, represents a a kind of narrative arc, because I I worked on a book way back, 25 years ago, entitled uh, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, tracing the covenant through salvation history to see its fulfillment as continuing even now through the Holy Spirit in the sacraments, and this was my discovery of the Catholic faith. At the same time, I wrote a book called The Lamb's Supper, because we don't have to wait until death to enter heaven there really is a sense in which the purpose of the visions of John and the apocalypse show the saints and the angels singing the same songs, offering the same sacrifice and prayers, the amen, the holy, 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 the lamb of God, and so on to show that when we go to mass and we're spiritually alert, we recognize that angels and saints surround us, not just our fellow parishioners. And so we discover on the one hand, that religions form societies, which was the thesis of our book, It Is Right and Just. On the other hand, we discover that the civilization-forming power of the Catholic faith is absolutely unique and singular in world history, and not just because of Christendom mm-hmm. or what we might call Western civilization, but wherever you trace the faith, you also track what it does in transforming not only the individual life Trajectory of of a person who now is destined for heaven, but of families, of villages, of states, or even nations. That is the, I mean, the purpose of the Catholic faith is not to form a civilization of love, it's to form saints. So if you seek first the kingdom of God, these things might be added to you. And I think that is the purpose of recognizing that even Abel had set his heart on heaven. And so when he died, it really wasn't a loss as much as, as it was a gain for you know, St. Paul to live as Christ, to die as gain. Well, that was true for Abel and all of the martyrs as well. So I just feel like we have to recalibrate our outlook in a way that is comprehensive and yet rooted in Scripture and in the tradition. And I think at this point, we as Catholics have no reason to give in the nostalgia on the one hand or despair on the other.
0: Well, let me ask you about anger then, uh, because the I the, I am inspired by what you said. But I, I I saying with that, we see that the earthbound horizons—these are your words—inevitably lead to envy, violence, and destruction. I do think that the Christian today often struggles with anger because what's being proposed is an earthbound horizon, and all the media that's directed at our children is trying to draw them to to this. Earthbound horizon away from the heavenly horizon. The much of the the schooling that they're getting is doing this. The the whole kind of tenor of the culture, wherever culture uh, is made, even even you know the 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 wild uh, west of books for young adults, which are just corrupting of young minds, uh, and they're and they're all proposed as liberation. I just want to ask you before we we continue on, what do you what do you recommend the Christian do with the anger that 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 there there's a kind of riding roughshod over what was once a, a civilization that that had hope uh, in the Lord?
1: You know, at one level, the anger is totally understandable. Uh, on the other hand, we remind you know we remember what Paul Paul wrote, and that is. The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. Yeah. And so you recognize in the long haul, anger is not only counterproductive, it's feeding right into the agenda of the evil one and those who kind of follow that sort of uh, that program. And so for your own sake, for others, too, you want to give the anger to the Lord and lay it upon the altar. You, you know, it's one of those things that he would gladly accept and transform. In the process, what you'll discover is something that transcends how reasonable it is to be anger, angry. I think what the real point is that if we recognize from the outset or if we discover right now that we have this dual citizenship, but our real purpose on earth is to enter heaven. And when we do, we don't just detach ourselves from earthly concerns. We're invested with a power to intercede for those in the church militant From the perspective of the church in glory, the church triumphant. And all this really amounts to is adding up all of the sacred mysteries that we call Catholic doctrine and discovering that our beliefs are not just talking points, our doctrines to be lifted and memorized. They really form the mystery of faith. And when we go to Mass, when we receive Holy Communion, we're not just receiving exclusively the body of Christ, his physical body now resurrected. We're receiving the Son as well as the Father and the Spirit. We're also in communion with all of the saints and the angels that form the mystical body of Christ. And so more than anything else we do, what we do in the holy sacrifice of the Mass has the potential to effect the greatest change possible. And if everything else we do is ordered to our participation in the Eucharistic liturgy and flows out of the grace that we receive, then once again I think we'll discover that God wants to use us to bring about the humanly impossible more than we want them to. So anger, despair, sadness, anxiety, these are the things that we have to kind of offer up to God and just say, deliver us from these paralyzing emotions.
0: Okay, and I, th- that's why you, you surprised me with an answer that the, the you and your co-author uh, Brandon McG- McGill, excuse me, McGinley gave uh, in the book. You asked the question, "Are we there yet?" And I thought uh, that well, the answer is going to be no. I mean, I already know this. I'm going to get to the end of the chapter. The answer is going to be no. And you both say uh, the answer is always both yes and no. This is the great and hopeful mystery of the people of God. We are not yet home, and yet we have access to that home. And that's what you're talking about in the
1: sacraments. That's right. I mean, again, Father Newhouse, who was the founder of First Things, often spoke of prolepsis, especially in his book, American Babylon. And the idea of prolepsis is to anticipate an act, you know, in which a hoped-for future is already present. I mean, the greatest exemplar of that, obviously, is the mass. But just living by faith is such that you discover, you know, as St. Catherine would put it, you know, halfway to heaven is heaven. That when you're walking with Christ, you are, in a certain sense, experiencing heaven. And this might sound like religious rhetoric, but what if it is actually true and real? And that's what we have to recognize, that we don't just pray to kind of figure out God's will. What you discover frequently is that uh, prayer is God's will. You know, as Paul told the Thessalonians, this is the will of God for you, that you marry somebody, that you get this career, that you... You choose this major for your undergraduate program at college. I mean, all of that is not insignificant, but when we pray and walk with God and talk with him and open our hearts to him, you know, and and complain to him as well. I mean, this is the thing that I I still want to write another book about, and that is there are 150 psalms, and the Psalter is the only book of the Bible that the church prays 24 seven all the way from beginning to end, and roughly 42% of those psalms are what we call psalms of complaint. We're not complaining about God in those psalms. We're complaining to him. And the fact is, you don't complain to someone unless you think they care, and you, you think that they could do something about it. And I think a kind of false pietism paralyzes us and prevents us from praying the way the, psal- the psalmists pray. And that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why have you forsaken us? Why have you put us in such a bad situation? I Very few people talk to me that way, but the primary characters who have always talked to me that way are my children, because I'm their father. If they think I care? <laughs> well, I do. They think I can do something? Sometimes I can. But we ought to approach God, not as the Wizard of Oz, we're terrified. We have to approach him as father. This is the breakthrough, the re- basically the revolution in religious history that the Incarnation evokes. And, and so as much as we emphasize the natural law, natural theology, natural virtue throughout the book, what we really want to do is to move from generic revision to the revelation of Christ. And once we do that in our own prayer, in our own marriage and family, I, I think we're going to end up being shocked at what a difference it makes.
0: Scott Hahn is our guest. The new book is Catholics in Exile Biblical Wisdom for The Journey Home. We continue with the conversation right after this on Catholic Answers Live. When the resurrected Jesus appeared to disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't recognize him until the breaking of the bread. The same is true today. In the Holy Eucharist, we really meet Jesus. In The Eucharist is Really Jesus, author Joe Heschmeyer explains how knowing Jesus in the Eucharist is the key to understanding all of Christian faith. Order your copy of The Eucharist is Really Jesus today at shop.catholic.com or get it at a good Catholic bookstore.
2: If you're not a Bible scholar, the full message of how the Sunday Mass readings fit together can be tough to comprehend. Apologist Carlo Broussard is here to help. Join Carlo every Friday for the Sunday Catholic Word podcast. In each episode, he unpacks the scripture readings for that Sunday and brings them all together so you can better understand and defend the faith.
0: Visit SundayCatholicWord.com to subscribe. That's SundayCatholicWord.com. Want to get right to the core of Christ's saving message? Want a roadmap for living the life Christ calls you to? It's time to look again at the Beatitudes. In his new book, Heart of the Gospel, how the Beatitudes show us God's plan for happiness, Father Sebastian Walsh demonstrates compellingly how these eight declarations make up the foundation, the essence, and the final goal of Jesus' teaching. Heart of the Gospel illuminates the scriptural passages from which we get the Beatitudes. Explains the significance of their wording, their order, and their timing in Jesus' ministry. And it draws out edifying parallels and connections with salvation history in the lives of the saints. Most importantly, Father Walsh offers wise counsel from his own work as a priest and teacher to help you live the Beatitudes in your own life. Order your copy of Heart of the Gospel today at shop.catholic.com or ask for it at a good Catholic bookstore near you. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. I'm Cy Kellett, your host. Be sure to visit shop.catholic.com and check out the prices during our store-wide fall sale. Everything in the shop is discounted 10 to 25%. In some cases, more than 25%, and our selection of books, digital products, and other merchandise has grown by more than 150 items in the last year alone. It's not all books and CDs. I mean, some of the growth has been in the uh, coffee mug area, in the t-shirt area. But uh, check it all out over at shop.catholic.com, fall sale right now, 10 to 25% off. We're talking with uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, uh, the, his new book in, in a series of books that of, um, of recent vintage, uh, grappling with the position of the Christian, of the Catholic person in the world today. This one is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Uh, Dr Hahn we're very grateful that you're here with us to talk about uh, this book I do th- I feel like you are speaking in these books to a very large segment of Catholics who are I, I almost want to say stunned in a way at what's happened to us and and you reference in here um, Augustine of course and and the the sack of the city of Rome and how that kind of was a Uh, like a slap in the face to every person around the Roman world, and uh, left a kind of, what is happening uh, feeling in everyone, which gave us one of the greatest books in the history of the world, The City of God. But it does, I do feel that many people today have that that slap in the face feeling of what is happening to us.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and it helps us to connect with the the people of God in the old testament who had experienced a series of covenants with the lord god from abraham through moses to david you know and the covenant with david was a divine kingdom that would last forever until 586 with the destruction of jerusalem the demolition and desecration of the temple the diaspora and all of that exile wait a minute is god asleep at the wheel you know how is it possible for our temple to be in ruins And so what we've got to recognize is Augustine recognized around, you know, around Rome, people were feeling the same thing. You know, we underestimate the extent to which conversion had taken place even before Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313, when he decriminalized Christianity and then later received baptism on his deathbed, Rodney Stark points out in The Rise of Christianity that there was roughly a 40% growth rate in the Roman Empire for the Christian religion per decade. And that was true in the second and third centuries, even before the Edict of Milan. And so the explosive power of the Christian faith seemed to be completely shaken. Uh, the trauma i mean it's it's more than just it's more than a uh, uh, it's more than a storm it really is a crisis of faith yeah. for new testament believers when alaric and the visigoths sack rome in 410 because rome seemed to be everything i mean it seemed to the pagans as well as the believers to be impregnable and yet here it is once again we discover here we have no lasting city, and what was true for Jerusalem and then Rome is also true for New York City and Paris and London and whatever town we live in as well. So we, we recognize on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's true for the church. It's not even true for Rome and the Vatican. Uh, I won't go into that because I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, as Amos said, but I, I think it's a wake-up call, but it's also a call to a sort of Deeply sacred but sober realism. You know, people often ask parents, you know, who's your favorite child? And we don't have a favorite. But I must say, I do have a favorite book, and that's always the newest book that I have in my hands. And so Catholics in Exile has, for me, uh, brought to climax what was there already in the Lamb's Supper and in the Fourth Cup to recognize that not only do the sacraments make us saints, but they also have a power to form or to restore a civilization and i think that represents our marching orders here and now uh it's a it's
0: extraordinary that 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 what you're saying uh jibes perfectly with this eucharistic um revival that we're all praying for Uh, uh, a a a restored sense that the that the sacraments uh, actually have power that in the sacraments we experience and begin to live in the power of god that's uh, that's the game changer, isn't it? To to be restored, renewed in the in the in the orientation, I suppose, uh, not towards all the other good that the church does, but the good that happens,
2: the divine good that happens in the sacraments. Exactly. I mean, we would recognize the obvious truth that wherever the Lord Jesus is, as King of Kings, there is his a ki- there is his kingdom. But once we recognize, okay, wherever the Eucharist is, there is the King then we see that the the mystery of the kingdom of God is really what we find in the Holy Eucharist, and not just individually, but also publicly, socially. And when you look at the history of Christendom and its rise from the ashes of pagan Rome, you recognize that at every point along the path, Christ's own real presence, his own kingship really is manifested not only in the monasteries and in the cathedrals, but precisely wherever people are recognizing the sacred mystery of Christ in the Eucharist and his own kingship. That's why you know, I have referred to the trilogy of books, The First Society, It Is Right and Just, and now Catholics in Exile, as my kingship of Christ trilogy. Uh, because the kingship of Christ is not only manifested in those historical occasions where we identify a sort of Catholic Christian civilization, but just as I point out in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 24 and also in 29, two of the most important base texts for this whole book uh, in the Old Testament, that we really ought to, you know, plant gardens. We ought to build houses and live in them. We ought to be married, raise our families, and pray for the peace of the city to which the Lord, our God, has driven us. Whether it's San Diego, whether it's Steubenville, Ohio, or you know wherever else the people of God are located, there really is a sense in which when we gather to celebrate the Holy Eucharist every Sunday, we are united in a way that the United States will never be.
0: Amen. Amen. I... I, I... As, you, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, we're on many, many Catholic radio stations. One of the great benefits of these Catholic radio stations is that we speak with non-Catholics constantly. We have, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of non-Catholic listeners. What are they to make of Scott Hahn saying that Christ is the King? Is there any reason for—because I do—I wonder about their anxiety. What do we mean when we're saying Christ really is the King of this universe? Uh, is that something that, uh, say, a non-believer should
2: uh, be afraid of? No, I don't think so. Because when you go to John 18, and you hear Paul's interrogation of Jesus, he's a typical politician. You know, he doesn't care about the truth. He doesn't care about the reality of Christ's kingdom. Christ said, my kingship is not of this world. But he never said, my kingship is not in this world. If he's the Lord of heaven and earth, then he's the king of kings and the president of presidents. But, you know, his point is, that Pilate is not going to be threatened by the force utilized by his disciples because, again, the mystery of his kingdom is the mystery of the power of love that is manifested upon the cross. Clearly, there are two rival cities, the city of God and the city of man. There are two rival versions of kingdom, one that is rooted in the truth of love, the other one is that is rooted in power, the kingdom. And even though we have to recognize that it's surrounded by this kind of kingdom, nevertheless, what you see is, you know, on Calvary, Good Friday, what appears to be the ultimate defeat of God's kingdom ends up exemplifying that kingdom in the most counterintuitive, unexpected way, as St. Augustine would say, Christ the King reigns from the wood of the cross. And it isn't just like, well, that's again, you know, holy hyperbole. No, there really is a sense in which he bears the cross to show that death is no longer the loss of life. Death has become the gift of life. What he did for us is now what he's doing in us. When we get home to heaven, we'll look back and understand why it was so obscure, but on the other hand, why it was so reasonable. This life that seems so long is going to just seem so short when you enter into eternity. And when we capture or restore this eternal perspective, we realize, you know, in a certain sense, the Catholic faith is a map of ultimate reality, but not just political reality. The sacramental mystery of the saints and the angels who adore Christ and who serve the Blessed Virgin as the Queen of Heaven do not represent any kind of political, economic, military threat to the secular kingdoms. On the other hand, what they can do is to open up their hearts and minds to the reasonableness. Of the truth of the Gospel, and at the same, same time to discover that the Kingdom of Christ does nobody harm. It really brings health and life and love and blessing. And and, and once we start to focus on that and live it out faithfully, I think we're going to make a compelling case. I wonder if people will be
0: more open to that too, seeing the consequences of de-Christianizing, that it doesn't go the way you think it's gonna go when de-Christianizing is your primary idea. Like the less Christianity we have, the more we're liberated from that old stuff, uh, the better things we'll get. The, the, there's a hard cold fact of, of human nature that actually turning away from a, a religion of love and a God of love, it, it's not gonna do what you think it's gonna do if, you're, if that's what you're looking for.
2: Right, you know, I, I, I wrote a book uh few years ago with Dr. Ben Weicker, politicizing the Bible, in which we trace the philosophical movements over the last uh, millennium or so. And what you discover, I mean, this has been clarified by people like George Weigel, among others, Father Survey Pinkers, the great Dominican moralist, is that you've got two rival versions of kingdom because you've got two rival versions of freedom. In classical Christian antiquity, it was always freedom for virtue, freedom to excel, freedom to grow holy. Because the law that came from God came from the mind of God, who knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us more than we love ourselves. So he only legislates what will perfect and fulfill us. Whereas the notion of freedom that emerges in the 14th century is freedom from power, authority, law, God, the church, and religion in general. And it started off small. You know, when you look at Marsilius of Padua, or when you look at William of Ockham, you you begin to see it more clearly in the next century through Machiavelli, where the ends justify the means in his famous work, The Prince. He sets into motion what has become something of a secular tidal wave, where the only way we understand freedom is that it's freedom from authority, power, law, and what freedom consists of is the liberation by getting out from under law, power, and authority. And all you've gotta to do to think that way is just take a breath, it's in the air. Yeah. Whereas what you do when you, when you basically trace back the mystery of our salvation to the incarnation, to the cross, and now in the Holy Eucharist, you recognize that the freedom we have for discipleship and obedience is ultimately ordered to a love that is stronger than death, and a love that is stronger than sheer brute force or mere power. And let's put our Lord to the test and just recognize the fact that what looked like a complete and total defeat for Christ was actually not a failure, but the fulfillment you know, of what was there from the beginning, from all eternity.
0: Dr. Scott Hahn is our guest. The new book is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back to continue our conversation right after this on Catholic Answers Live.
2: This is Bishop Chad Zelensky from the Diocese of Fairbanks of northern
1: Alaska, and you are listening to Catholic Answers Live.
0: Underwriting for Catholic Answers Live is provided by Real Estate for Life. Real Estate for Life connects homebuyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations. On the web at realestateforlife.org. This month's devotion is to the Holy Rosary. St. John Paul II called the rosary his favorite prayer, in which we meditate with Mary upon the mysteries which she, as a mother, meditated on in her heart. The rosary is one of the most cherished prayers of our Catholic faith. Join in this devotion to Mary and strengthen our connection to Our Lady with rosary beads, bracelets, boxes, pouches, and rings. Available at EWTNRC.com. Uh, what a, wonder, a wonderful opportunity for us! What a delightful opportunity to get to talk with Dr. Scott Hahn about the new book Catholics in Exile: Biblical Wisdom for the Journey home it does I, I do strongly feel that Christian people i mean I, people every I, I sometimes say at, at the beginning of a talk if I'm, if i 've got a group of people i 'll say uh, how many people think things are going well, and it doesn 't matter if you 're talking to left wing or right wing it doesn 't matter if you're talking to a secular group or a Catholic group. They, there's always laughter when you ask that question, because everybody knows things are not going well. There's nobody who's or if, they, if there are, there are very few people uh, that are living with the delusion that, well, this is working out great so uh, and certainly then Christian people are are faced with the question what does that mean for us what is our role in a world that seems to be failing it seems to be failing morally and it seems to be failing practically in many ways it's certainly very violent I mean we have uh, a habit of warfare that is really shock uh, earlier generations uh, the the just the sheer uh, number of uh, bombs that are dropped in, in uh, and uh, not to make a judgment about any particular engagement or any, but but to say if you su- sum it all up, something looks very, very wrong. Our, our economics looks wrong, our, our foreign policy uh, looks wrong are something in our town, in our family, uh, right where we live, uh, feels wrong and and seems wrong. And it's wonderful to have uh, Scott Hahn, uh, who has helped us in so many ways, uh, understanding the Scripture, understanding the person of Jesus, understanding the sacraments, kind of say, well, here's some ways to draw upon those sources, to think about our role as Catholics in the world. Uh, The latest book is Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Uh, His co-author is, as I said, uh, uh, Brandon McGinley. Um, uh, some of this uh, uh, kind of shocked Christian reaction was first crystallized, I would say, in a book called The Benedict Option uh, by Rod Dreyer. And uh, you have a chapter in here called The Jeremiah Option. And when one hears the word option at the end of the title of a chapter, one says, well, there's something here that, uh, that clearly you, you want us to, uh, as we consider all the options, for a minute it seemed like every Catholic book had to have the word option at the end of it. Uh, you want to propose Jeremiah as
2: an option to consider. Why did you want to do that? Which is like the secondary text to the whole book. When we speak about bis- biblical wisdom for the journey home, we're focusing on the new, but also looking back upon the old. And, and Jeremiah was the prophet of exile. And in Jeremiah 29, he writes a letter. I also refer to Jeremiah 24. There are people who have survived in Jerusalem, and who think they're the lucky ones. Whereas those who have been driven into exile are looked upon as the poor folk, the deplorables as it were. Jeremiah reverses that in this uh, parable of the, the basket of good figs and the bad figs. The ones who are suffering are actually the objects of divine favor and mercy. Whereas the ones who are prospering in Jerusalem, but in the context of political corruption and moral wickedness, they're the bad figs. And so through the eyes of faith, you look at reality and you realize that what appears to be the case is not exactly the case. It's more like looking at a photographic negative, where what is dark is actually light and what, what is light is actually dark. So it's almost the reversal of the way people think in terms of their own fallen nature. And so in Jeremiah 29, the letter that Jeremiah sends to the exiles to express God's favor, his plan, is famously begun. Build houses, and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons and give your daughters to mar- in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there do not decrease seek the welfare of the city where i have sent you into exile and pray to the lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare and he warns against false prophets who basically would advocate political violence and attempts to overthrow the government. And then even perhaps more famously, what he promises is, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a bright hope. This is the way we sojourn through earth. We often confuse hope with optimism. I am not optimistic about Mm -hmm. the future of America, but I am hope-filled and for lots of reasons that I get into in the book and even beyond the book with Brandon, but I think what we have to cultivate is the supernatural virtue of hope, that God seems to prefer to do more with less, that it is the light that shines in the darkness, and so as things get darker and darker, and as we are humble, but at the same time, we are faithful and striving for the Holy Spirit to reach us, our offspring and our neighbors and all of that, It isn't the case that we just have to reduce it all to political action, nor should we avoid political involvement. But in the process, prayer, the liturgy, the sacraments, especially the mass, these are the things that release the invisible forces of a kingdom of heaven, which is a kingdom of love. And this really is why Pope Benedict, for example, refers to the monks at Cluny as the single most powerful force to bring about that, what we we call Christendom. And why was it? Because the Eucharist was the source and the center, the summit of their lives. And so more than the cities, it was in the monasteries, not so much in the palace or, you know, in the public hall, but really when people gathered to pray, this is what releases the force. And, you know, I keep thinking back to my book, Lamb's Supper, because, you know, all of history is controlled by the Lord of heaven, but what gets God's people through all of these historical crises, all of the political corruption, all of the persecutions down through the ages is precisely the blood of the Lamb, but the liturgy is front and center in these visions, and why? Because the liturgy is the engine of history. Contrary to what everybody thinks, contrary to appearances, it really is the it is a fact of the faith that as we prepare ourselves to enter into this mystery of faith, we will affect change more than even if our favorite politicians... Made all these promises, get life that keeps most of them. That the,
0: the, that is the, whole, the when, as you're speaking though. I, I have to say I feel invigorated and excited because that's a high high calling. Uh, whether it's into the monastery with a life uh, formed around the Eucharist, or it's into marriage with a life formed around the Eucharist, that's a high calling. But I these young people that you and I both know they are just bombarded with messages about, if you have a lot of children, you're destroying the earth, (laughs) you know, for example, that there's this counter-narrative that is so powerful that even their desire to do good tells them, don't do uh, this good of having children, for example.
2: Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of books out there, perhaps beginning with Charles Taylor, The Secular Age, that are narratives of secularization, and a number of them are written from a side that is contrary to our beliefs, but Charles Taylor and many others uh, have shown us that the equation of progress with secularization is practically an axiom. It's an unquestioned assumption. And once we call that into question, I think what we end up doing is liberating our own minds and our hearts, as well as marriages and families, through homeschooling, through good private Catholic schools or sometimes through the parish schools, but it really is its the Great Commission, lived out practically in terms of our own present circumstances. Make disciples of all nations? Christ, you've got to be kidding. You mean make disciples in all nations? No. He wants to manifest in history what is already established in heaven, and will it Will it fall into place according to our desires? Probably not. But when we look back on what Christ accomplishes, we're probably gonna say, that turned out even better than the Republicans taking back the White House or whatever else we might fantasize about in the next election cycle. And the other thing I point out in the book is that, as Catholics, we don't think in terms of election cycles. We think in terms of generations. We don't think in terms of policy debates about climate change. We should get involved and engaged in those debates. But at the same time, the idea of raising up children and godchildren and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, this is what's going to affect change. Not just planting the fall harvest so we have food in the winter, but also planning forests so that our great grandkids will have the lumber and timber they need to build their houses and their furniture and all of the rest. And so we are here like leaven in bread, you know, not expecting to see the kingdom manifested in its perfection, but recognizing that we're exiles, we're sojourners and pilgrims on our way to the home of the Father.
0: When you think of it that way, you remaining married, me remaining married, ever, anyone else. It, staying in that marriage and, and fulfilling the vows uh, till death becomes uh, not a, a, a kind of a, a limit on our freedom and liberation, but it becomes, again, a very noble, noble task. You, the, you start to see marriage then as, as the center of my Christian identity, uh, not something that I just kind of hope works out.
2: You know, I've mentioned once or twice that this is the third in a trilogy, the Kingship of Christ trilogy. The first in the trilogy is the first society. And I share an anecdote at the beginning of that when I was still a Protestant pastor, a doctoral student at Marquette, studying under a brilliant Jesuit, Father Donald Keefe. And it was a religion and culture uh, doctoral seminar. It was half and half Protestant and Catholic in 85 with the moral majority and where pro-life action was actually bringing Protestants and Catholics together. But it was in the Reagan period as well. So we were pretty optimistic, but we were mindful of Falwell and other aspects of the so-called moral majority. So we were debating as doctoral students do. And then suddenly Father Keefe just opined, staring out the window. You know, he said, if Catholics simply lived the grace of matrimony in their own marriages for one generation, the result would be a transformed culture, a Christian culture. And I thought, this is crazy. And and, and he said, oh, but I digress. And he went back to the discussion and the lecture and I'm thinking, no, keep digressing. It (laughs) felt like a laser beam on the back of my eye. And just the retinal image was like, that sounds so much more realistic than just getting Reagan reelected, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, it's so funny because, yeah, the, the more we are politicized in our view—and we only have a few seconds left, Dr. Han, I'm sorry—the the less we are able to grasp this message that, that you're giving us in, in this whole series of books, but in the new book Catholics in Exile, these basic things that Christ has given us, like marriage and family, like the Eucharist, these are not just helps and supports to the
2: real work, these are the real work. That's right. I mean, if the Eucharist is the marriage supper of the Lamb, then let's go home and live our marriage in terms of the grace that we've just received so that we can, in effect, have a a thicker slice of heaven on earth. I got
0: to say, I am just a huge fan of these recent works. I mean, uh, uh, not to, to the exclusion of any other work, but I do think this is just wonderful, important work that we're getting uh, from Dr. Scott Hahn and these three recent books. I hope you'll get the new book, Catholics in Exile, Biblical Wisdom for the Journey Home. Uh, there really is uh, wisdom in here, and I hope you'll a- a- a avail yourself of it. Dr. Scott Hahn, it's always a great honor and a pleasure. Thank you for being here with us for
2: an hour. So, si, it's wonderful to be with you once again twice in one week, how good does it get? I should also mention in closing that you don't need to read the first two before you read Catholics in Exile. In fact, a number of readers have already observed that reading this is actually a better way to start with the first and the second as well. Catholics it's in Exile. either direction. Thank you, Dr. Hahn.